0: Hey, we're on part two of a chunk of Scripture related to feeding the 5,000. I don't know about you, but teachers always get more than the pupils in their study. So I've been growing richly in my deep dive into Mark's gospel, and I'm hoping that there's just a little bit getting through to you as well so that you're finding a few of those golden apples that we talked about. So we're going to go apple picking today for some more of those golden apples in a silver basket, as the proverb says. Last week... We looked at Mark's Oreo cookie style. We had seen one of his Oreo cookie uh, stories back earlier in his gospel when Jesus was being interrupted in one of the things that he was doing to help Jairus. It was the synagogue leader. Somebody had said, please, please come and help. And Jesus started to help with that and then he was interrupted because the lady showed up, touched the hem of his garment. He felt the power go out. He healed that woman, affirmed her. And then the servant comes, interrupts that. It's like interruption after interruption. And says, nope, no need to bother the master. Your daughter is already dead. Jesus says, don't worry. She's merely sleeping. Good teaching there. He goes to his house, raises the girl from the dead. So that's the first Oreo cookie story that we saw. Now we're in the middle of another one. And so we're going to look at Mark's Oreo cookie this time in chapter 6. Cookie number 1 was the debriefing session. After he had sent the disciples out two by two, he had empowered them to go preach the gospel, which I'm sure had a lot to do, the more I'm looking into it, I think they had a lot to do with some of the stories he had been sharing through the things like the Sermon on the Mount. Because he was an itinerant preacher, which means that he'd probably been saying a lot of these same stories over and over in different locations to different people, and they were getting through to these folks too. So they were getting a good coalesced gospel So I don't think it was just preaching, repent, kind of like Jonah in Nineveh. I think there was more to it than that. But he also gave them the ability to heal the sick, which they had done, and to cast out demons, which they had done. So they're coming back to debrief, and he says, so how did that go? Tell me what happened. So that was what they were engaged with. Then we have this interruption, which would be the creamy filling in the middle. And that's where Mark starts to show us more details about John the Baptist's murder. And we've talked about that. So then we just barely scratched the surface and started last week to get into the feeding of the 5,000, which all these other things are context to help us get into the feeding of the 5,000. And there we're going to find some rich, shiny golden apples that are going to be refreshing to our soul. And I'm looking forward to doing that. So, look to me my eyeballs. That's my new catchphrase. Are you ready to go apple picking? All right, let's dive in there. I'm going to pick it back up with verse 30, but since I read the whole passage last week, I'm just going to start taking scriptures uh, one or two at a time, and then comment on each one of those as we do that today. First of all, verse 30, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told told Him all that they had done and taught, and then jesus says and i can imagine him looking weary as he says this "Ah, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while he said this because there were so many people coming and going that jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat you may remember from last time that this is the first time that jesus gives them the title apostles up to this point he has always referred to them as disciples we learned that that was something because they had been doing something in response to his call, and they were obedient to being sent out, and sent out is what the, the word apostle means. And we learned last week that it's okay for us to take some time to get restoration. I've talked with a few of you who have had some restorative rests in various locations this summer, and I'm so grateful for it. Please catch me and show me your uh, pictures from your phone. If you've been to some exciting places, a couple of you have already, and it's really good to see the smiling faces and a sense of relief on the part of some of you because you have managed to find some rest. Here we see another interruption to Jesus' agenda, as in that first Oreo cookie story in chapter 5, one ministry need gets interrupted by another, and that's certainly the case here. In this case, it's interrupted by a huge demand on Jesus, and because the apostles are with Jesus, it becomes a demand on their time as well. So let's take it to verse 32. There were needy people who ran ahead of Jesus, so they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and I'm sure they saw which direction they were headed. They were probably cutting off the curve of the Lake of Galilee, and they thought, I bet they're going over to that cove. Let's go ahead of them. And so sure enough, they did. And people from many towns ran ahead of them along the shore and got there. Now, when you guys were kind enough to send Joy and me to Israel just a few short years ago, we actually saw that place where this miracle took place. Uh, It's still considered the traditional spot because it's grassy area. There was enough flat ground that was almost like an amphitheater, not the one where he did those other parables from the boat. This would actually be the feeding place. And because there are a number of villages and towns right along that northwestern shore, it would be really easy for people to come because most of that was within walking distance or a nice little donkey ride. And so there would have been very easy for the buzz to go around and for them to see where the boat was because if they were not that far offshore, they could have actually used that to pinpoint where he was and get ahead of where he was. So this is all very realistic to me. I tended to think of Israel being far bigger Geographically, in my head, until I got there and saw things for myself, and I thought, this all makes total sense now. Uh, I was in a, as a not a participant, I was a spectator at a conference in Chicago many years ago, and Henry Blackaby was a guest speaker there, and we had been studying his book, Experiencing God, and he was really in demand as a speaker. God was really using him in a big way in a number of churches, but especially Baptist churches. It was almost that as though God were helping Henry Blackaby reintroduce Baptists to the Holy Spirit in a good way because it was a balanced biblical teaching and I think that there had been a a push away from some of the power of the Holy Spirit because we were so afraid of abuses that we had seen and yet we needed to rediscover the fact that he is one of the three persons of the Trinity and there are many good things that the Spirit does for us and we needed to recapture that. So Henry was the speaker And when I was coming in to that large banquet room where they'd set it up for all these chairs, I'm guessing them to be probably 350, 400 people there, something like that. And I saw Henry Blackaby coming in too, and I thought, oh, there he is. And he was preparing to speak. Now, I'm a pastor, so I'm used to that. I I know what it's like to be going through all the things in your head as you're trying to approach a time when you're supposed to speak, and you're thinking, okay, Lord, am I gonna get this right? Please help me to remember that, and I need to make sure that I'm doing that. But everybody was clamoring for Henry's attention, and one man in particular did not have the spiritual gift of tact, <laughs> shall we say, because he ran up to him and he goes, "Well, Henry, you're a tough man to get a hold of. Let me tell you," he said, "I've been trying like crazy to get a hold of you, and I just keep getting a runaround. Do you not want to be caught, or what's the deal?" He was just basically, well, he was rude, <laughs> and Henry was so gracious. And he said well I'm glad to finally be able to talk to you now tell me your name again he was just so gracious and I thought oh this is exa- an example of why when the Holy Spirit gets to really transform us he transforms everything including how re- we respond to rude people and Henry provided a gracious example of how you can react when somebody is not being very nice about it and he said I am so sorry that I have been so busy what can I do for you? And he gave that man undivided attention at a time when he's probably thinking, I have to speak in two minutes or three. And we, in two minutes. <laughs> you see, I'm rattled just thinking about it. And so then he got up and spoke and did a, an amazing job. But that was just one man, and there were about 350 or 400 people waiting. This was more than 5,000. Because it says 5,000 plus their families. So I don't know what kind of a crowd this was, but clearly this was a huge demand on Jesus' time. And so we're about to learn some things from Jesus and how He reacts to that kind of pressure and a demand on His time. So what was Jesus' response? Verse 34. He didn't tell the disciples, hey guys, you know that stack of contact cards that I had you pick up from Staples? I want you to hand them out to everybody and make sure that they can fill out their first, second, and third choices for a time they have available within the next two weeks so that we can schedule appointments during our office hours. He didn't do that. He actually just said, Okay, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. (laughs) I love that. And here's something we learn from Jesus at the very moment when he was probably, humanly speaking, very tempted to think, who's going to look after my needs? I need some me time. I need to step away for a while. He was probably tempted to think more about himself than he was thinking about these other people's needs. He looked upon them, and instead he had compassion on them. And he decided, okay, I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to find a little bit more, and I'm going to continue to pour myself out to them, and I'm going to feed them. By teaching them. It's really tempting, isn't it? When people are really clamoring for our attention and we feel there's a lot of demand on us for whatever reasons. Many of you have been through some places at work and times at work when it's been very much like that. I know that for a fact, especially in this last two and a half years. And it's tough. And there are times when I got to admit, you just feel like I just want to escape and go to a nice secluded Caribbean island. Preferably not during hurricane season. But one that's really secluded and yet that has lots of provisions so that nobody is knocking on my door or texting my cell phone or creating another thing on my to-do list today. I just need to get away for a while. I can imagine that because Mark slipped in there, this thing about John the Baptist and what had taken place, all these apostles, especially Jesus, had to have been feeling the need to be alone for a while. That's why they were going to the other part of the lake. But what we find out is that when we're going through the tough times, God can give us that compassion for others to say, take a deep breath, I've still got more for you to do, and I'll give you the strength to do it. And He will. There's something really counterintuitive about pouring ourselves out to others when we just don't feel like it, because God somehow does something wonderfully unexpected, or unexpectedly wonderful. It works both ways. He will start to well up from within us some sort of unexpected, surprised joy in the midst of our tired serving. I've found that happen when I feel like, okay, God, I'm going to have to drag myself out again, and I don't feel like it. I was thinking that I was all put up for the night. But I got this other little ministry need, and I'm going to go take care of it. And then I kind of pray my way through it, and when I get into that ministry need, he just starts to well up from within me, this living water. I think we become like artesian wells And even though we're operating from a dry well, he says, that's okay. I'm the source of living water. You're not. And so you're just going to be the conduit, and I'm going to bubble this up enough from within you that you're still going to be able to slosh all over those people with some living water, and you're going to be a blessing to them. And as you see them being blessed, I'm going to give you some blessing too. And then you drive home after that ministry experience, and you're thinking, God, you are so good. Because I probably would have said, nah, let's do this another day, but you gave me the strength to pour myself out one more time. And look, you're bringing me joy. Isn't that incredible? He does that for all of us. Well, why was Jesus compassionate? Look to me in my eyeballs. This is where it starts to get good because it's a theological point that starts to point to something about Jesus' identity and we're going to get us into a little bit of an apologetics note in a few minutes as well. It's found in the second part of verse 34. Why was he so compassionate? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Where have we heard that before? That sounds familiar, I hope. Well, here's one of those golden apples, and Mark's going to do some polishing of this golden apple for us, found nestled in this silver basket of context in the Oreo cookie, it's a weird analogy, I know, but it's all there for us, wrapped up in Mark's gospel. The people who had clamored for Jesus' attention had plenty of religious leaders. There were rabbis, there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, the ones that didn't believe in a resurrection, so they were so Sadducee. And then there were those who were in the Sanhedrin, and there were those who were the synagogue leaders, so they had lots of leaders, but it becomes apparent, not too many shepherds You've heard that phrase, there are too many cooks in the kitchen, too many chefs. Everybody wanted to be a leader, but not too many people wanted to be servant leaders as shepherds. And Jesus is starting to point that out to them. Here's a cautionary tale that we see right out of the headlines. I get this weekly newsletter from Christianity Today, and I started following about eight years ago the demise of a huge church movement out on the West Coast. And I started to see some rumblings, and oh there's an investigation, and this isn't looking good. There was a guy who had become quite famous in evangelical circles, and had created a multiple campus church, thousands of people, and suddenly he's under investigation. His elders are saying that there are things like pride issues, and autocratic leadership styles, and a quick temper, and he's not open to criticism or critique, and they were starting to really become Concerned about that. He had sort of a my way or the highway mentality. And this ought to be a little bit of a clue to us. He had earned the nickname in public media as the cussing preacher. I would think, I'm not sure that that's a good title. And it sort of seems to me to reveal a, a chink in his armor when you read some of the New Testament, especially about the Apostle Paul let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth except those things that are edifying for other people, etc. So here's what happened to that thing. All of a sudden, he resigns and then everything starts to fall like dominoes. They had more people that started to leave. At first it was a trickle and then it just poured it out. And then one by one, these other campuses folded until there was nothing, not the church planting network that they had started, thousands of people involved, not to mention the people that had been looking in through media of various types. And it was all just vaporized in a couple of years. Why is that? Because there was a lot of machinery in place. Some of the people that were on staff started saying later, the machinery of ministry had grown so big that the machinery was more important than shepherding people. And in some of our staff meetings, they were literally saying things like, you need to get these people out exactly on time because we got a whole parking lot full of people that are going to need to be parked and gotten in here for the next one because they had boiled it down and said every person in a seat represents this many dollars and we have to have that much money coming in to be able to keep the bills paid and I thought oh ouch I think they lost sight of their real purpose and obviously they did and so everything fell like dominoes. The church and its many campuses are history now. And I can't help but wonder how many people may have been so burned in those experiences that they just walked completely away from organized religion, put that in quotes, altogether. Because they saw more examples of people who were so mixed up in what our real purpose was all about. There were a lot of leaders in that organizational structure, but there weren't too many shepherds. And a few of those shepherds that tried to speak up got squelched by a person who was not a shepherd in his own heart. That's what had happened in the Jewish religious community. Things were the very same back then in first century AD. Many leaders, few shepherds. In Israel, our tour guide, Erit, who was from Israel, said, There's a saying in our country, three Jews, five opinions. She said, there are a lot of people who have strong opinions and they love to argue and they like to be important and they want to be the leaders. And I've always seen that and we see it in scriptures. That's what happened with the nation of Israel. There were people who kept taking them away from being strongly connected with God and they kept trying to do things their own way by being leaders but not shepherds. And each time we get this cautionary tale as we see in much of the Old Testament, we need to recognize, ooh. What do I do about that? Instead of just saying, yeah, those bad Israelites, shame on them. Instead, we need to say, "Uh uh-oh, God, what do you have for me about that? Am I open to the blinding white searing light that you shine inside that clay pot to reveal the cracks of my character? Because integrity means that all the cracks are sealed. And as we grow to be more like Christ, he's sealing more and more of those cracks. But if there's still some cracks in there, he wants to deal with us in those areas. And so we need to say, am I being too autocratic? Am I being too harsh? Am I being too legalistic? Am I being a servant leader who's willing to lay down my life for the sheep, for those that I'm trying to be an example to, as Jesus did for me? I think that's the cautionary note for us. Now, here's an important note, too. And I want to find this balance that we see in Jesus' life. Christianity does have rules. And you hear me a lot talking about how we need to avoid legalism. But we've got to balance that out because I'm not saying that we need to jettison the rules. That's not at all what Jesus did. Remember when he had that woman caught in adultery? He said, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you, but now go and sin no more. So he still had rules. And there are still rules in Scripture for us. But we need to make sure that the relationship with God is what motivates everything that we do rather than just checklists of do's and don'ts. And if you don't do it my way, then you're wrong. So I'm not suggesting that freedom in Christ gives us license to do whatever we want because God will bless it. I'm saying that a relationship with a loving, living God will drive us to want to do the right things because there are still rules. There are rules in every relationship. Parents, didn't you have some rules when your kids were growing up? I hope so. You needed to. Your job is to keep them safe and to keep them alive for another day. Man, when they're two, three years old, your job is just to keep them alive. Marriage, if you don't believe me that marriage doesn't have rules, just ask my wife. It's important, you know, we put the clothes in the hamper. Why do we do that? Because it makes the job easier for everybody. There are certain rules that we all have in... I think it's important for us to recognize that we don't need to turn everything into rules-based legalism. But there are many of these unwritten rules that just become superseded as the relationship drives everything forward. Because all those rules should exist so that we're nurturing and enhancing the relationship, making it deeper and stronger and lasting longer. All that should happen. So any relationship is going to involve rules, including our relationship with God but it should not be about legalism. Now, look to me in my eyeballs. Here's an Old Testament connection that starts to get really exciting as we think about why this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 shows up in all four Gospels. Remember that I said because it was all about Jesus' identity. And we're starting to see that right here. Like sheep without a shepherd. Hmm, good phrase. The phrase pops up in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel has been lacking godly leadership, that's when we see that phrase show up. Here's one example. Moses, nearing the end of his leadership role, he had been a great deliverer. He had managed to go up against Pharaoh, he and Aaron, led them out of Egypt through the wilderness for a long time because of sin, could have gotten there a lot quicker, And then, because of Moses' sin, struck the rock, instead of speaking to it the way the Lord said, not just once either, but twice, God says, "Uh uh-oh, all right, I'm not going to kill you, Moses. He didn't say that, but I'm saying that, according to other religions, they would look at that and say, I'm surprised that God was so gracious that he didn't just strike him dead for disobedience. But anyway, that's an aside. I say that because I was in a conference when I heard somebody tell a testimony from somebody from another country who had a very different religious background. And that was the story that they were supposed to share that day. And they thought, really, this is the story? How can you come up with a good evangelistic story from this, where Moses strikes the rock and he gets in trouble for it? But a person came up and said, you have such a gracious, loving God. I would rather serve a God like that. He, my God would have struck him dead right on the spot. So anyway, that's an aside. And it is true, God was gracious. But what God did say was, Moses, you don't get to go all the way into the promised land. You'll see it from up on top of a mountain, but you're not going in. So there was going to be another leader coming along to take up the mantle of leadership for Moses, right? So that's where we are in this example in the Old Testament. So in a prayer, very close to the end of Moses' life, listen to this. It gets exciting. This is Numbers 27, 16, and 17. May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community. He's thinking about the children of Israel, the ones that he's been caring for as a shepherd all these years. To go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. There's a beautiful Christ-type connection that we see now in the person of Joshua who comes after Moses. We see another that comes after him. So what's his name? Yeshua, Joshua, same name as Jesus. Oh my goodness, isn't it cool? Because we start to see a prototype and a foreshadowing of what the prophecy is pointing to, so that when the Messiah comes, Jesus will fulfill all that as well. And we're starting to see that picture emerge because of that phrase. So when we see Jesus say that, it becomes really vital and important because we're connecting it back here to Numbers. A prophet like Moses is another something that comes up as we look through Mark's gospel and into the other three gospels. There's more to this connection as we dig into Scripture, since later in the New Testament we learn that Jesus is also what we would consider a prophet like Moses. This prophet will be raised up by God, he will come from the Israelites. He will be like Moses. doesn't say he's going to be Moses reincarnated, but he will be like Moses. And he will be worthy of being listened to and being obeyed. Those are the things that we see in the New Testament. And we learn this in one of the last speeches that Moses made just before he passes the torch to Joshua. Moses gives this messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Who is speaking? Moses. So it's a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, from among you, be from among the Israelites, and you must listen to him. And he uses a term there that means listen and obey. So does that sound like something that we might have heard before? Yeah, that sounds an awful lot like what we should be doing with Jesus or Yeshua, the one who fulfilled all these prophecies. There were additional prophets that came after Moses. Of course there were but none quite like Jesus. And there's one who's going to lead the people into the promised land once and for all time. So people in Jesus' day, as you recall, were looking for this prophet like Moses. That was something that was on their spiritual consciousness. And as we've seen in the early part of Jesus' ministry, people were thinking that maybe Jesus was Elijah. Come to revisit them again. As people were at, he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say that maybe you're Elijah. Other people are saying, well, maybe he's just a prophet. But then some were thinking, okay, where is the prophet going to come? The one who is like Moses. When is that going to come along? This is where it starts to get really good. I mean, if you thought that was good, now look at John 1. And if you've got a chance to turn there, we're going to look at a couple of verses that are crucial. John 1, 19 through 21. So there were some religious leaders who approached John the Baptist All right, so he's the one who's heralding in the king. The king is coming. And they ask John the Baptist, point blank, who are you? And John was quick to say, well, I'm not the Messiah. He just says it outright, John 1.20. They ask him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And you remember that I had said in the current and modern Jewish family Passover celebrations, they have an empty chair at the table. Who does that represent that might come later? It's not Christ. It's Elijah. Because somehow they have added in this rabbinic teaching that's come in along the way that think that Elijah still needs to come again before the Messiah will show up. And they'll send a kid to the door and fling open the door and look outside and say, is he there yet? Is he there yet? Who are they looking for? They're not looking for Jesus. They're looking for Elijah. So this is important in the Jewish culture. And then John responds very clearly to that statement, are you Elijah? He goes, I am not. Very clear. And then look what else they say. Are you the prophet? Why didn't he say a prophet? Because he's trying to infer something important that they would have known about. He answers, no. Who was the prophet they asked about? It was the one who would be like Moses. And you know what that means? It means it's time for an apologetics affirmation. Aren't you excited about that? I am. It's this question that leads us into an apologetics study real quick because we see some skeptics that would start to give us pushback at this point. We believe that the Bible is quite clear that the one who is the prophet like Moses, the prophet like Moses, is Jesus Christ. And they would say, "Ah, that sounds contrived to me. That's the pushback they're giving. They would say, sounds like somebody in the New Testament just wanted to try to connect the dots, so they wrote it that way, hoping that we would think that it points back to Jesus Christ. But we don't, you know, I, I, it sounds contrived to us. Well, I'm happy to provide some affirmation that we're not reaching, they weren't reaching, they're not contrived. This really happened, and for good reason. And there's New Testament evidence to support that. So here's the New Testament affirmation that Jesus is the prophet Like Moses. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John had healed somebody. It was a man who'd been lame from birth. It was a big deal to these people. They were all clamoring to them, thinking, Wow, we've never seen a miracle like that. This is astounding. And of course, they were probably trying to worship them because people did that a lot. Paul and Barnabas encountered that, other of the apostles. They would do something astounding and they would want to worship the people who did the miracle instead of worshiping the God of the miracle. And Peter's quick to say, no, no, no. It's not about us. This is God power. It's a God thing. This is not us. We don't have that kind of power. And then in this wonderful chapter of Acts chapter 3, Peter lays it all out. Who Jesus is, what he did, who killed him, why, how he rose again, and why he is this prophet who is like Moses. As part of the speech, Peter says, for Moses said, this is Acts 3.22, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. It's almost a direct quote. You must listen to everything he tells you. And in that whole section of Acts 3, especially verses 17 through 26, Peter tells them that Jesus is the prophet who was like Moses. Now, Peter had been with Jesus. So this is a first-person eyewitness account. And Peter makes it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. So here we get to the point in the feeding of the 5,000 plus family members, and we're also gonna see some sparkling, beautifully polished golden apples in the context. Are you ready for it? You've been blown away about three times already. But wait, that's not all. Let me give you the wind up from what we've just seen. All because Jesus said these simple words, sheep without a shepherd. We see Jesus' compassion because he references the Old Testament phrase, saying that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. We've seen also in the Old Testament that there are some connections with him as being the one who is like Moses, this prophet who is like Moses, the prophet, not just a prophet. And now with all that beautifully crafted silver basket context, this is going to blow your mind when we look at John's gospel and his account of the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to see a huge, juicy, refreshing Golden apple. Remember last week when I said that this miracle was about Jesus' identity? Here it comes. You ready? More affirmation. John 6 14. After the people saw the sign, not the apostles, but the people saw the sign Jesus had performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They recognize, the people recognize that Jesus is the one like Moses. He's not just a prophet. He's the prophet, the one prophesied in the Old Testament. And why is that? This is where it gets so good. Because the people would have seen him multiply the bread and feed the masses. And they're thinking, oh wait, we've heard these stories. They're repeated to us. We rehearse these things. And our children of Israel stories about when they were led out by Moses. These were big things. This was a part of their culture. It was in their DNA. So for them to say, he broke the bread and fed the masses. They're going all the way back to manna. And they're thinking, Moses was leading at that time. And look what God did. He broke the bread and fed the masses. It was miraculous. No human explanation about that. And here we see this. So they were connecting this miracle with that miracle. And they're saying, he's got to be the prophet that's come into the world. And these are the people who are speaking. So in the context of the prophecy in Deuteronomy, in the context of Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus is clearly identified as the one who is not only like Moses, but then it also goes on to say that he is greater than Moses. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Jesus' disciples, and now many people in Israel, had done the math. They put all these prophecies together, and it becomes clear to them that Jesus is the high priest who has performed a superior sacrifice. When Moses was around, they still had to have repeated sacrifices. I guess it wore off, and they had to do it again. So it was constant recommitment. But when Jesus was sacrificed, the unblemished lamb, it was the perfect sacrifice, and it was one and done. It was once and for all time, so it was a superior sacrifice. Jesus was faithful to the one who had appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to the one who had appointed him. And Jesus had been found worthy of an even greater honor than Moses. We see this in Hebrews. Just as the builder of the house... Is worthy of a greater honor than the house itself. Moses was faithful and he bore witness to what would be spoken by God in the future, but Christ, so says Hebrews, is faithful as the Son over God's house. And then wait for the other shoe to drop. Who's the house? We are. The church. We are those living stones that Peter had talked about. Being built together and shaped so that we become the dwelling place of God. And he deserves a greater honor than the house itself. And it's an amazing coalescence of all these things. From the Old Testament leading all the way up into the New Testament. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The apostles They do all these things and start to see new meaning as Jesus continues to teach them, not only through His words, but especially through these miracles because they all teach. And it teaches about His identity. He's the one. He's the bread of life. He's the one who's greater than all the others. It's not just a prophet. It's not just a good teacher. He is the Son of God and the only one capable of doing what He does for us. And so he is worthy of our respect. He needs to be listened to and we should obey Him. John six fifty one. Jesus is that living bread. So what is Jesus giving them when He has compassion on them? He feeds them. It's one of the things a shepherd does. They lead and they feed. And He was feeding them by teaching them the truths from the Word. Isn't it great that we still have that same Word available to us? What have we been doing in this last 40 minutes? We've been feasting on the riches of His Word and becoming more personally involved in this God who loves us enough to give himself up for us and to multiply the bread and feed the masses. So here's the invitation. Will we open our hearts to the truth from God's word? Will we listen to Jesus, get to know him better so that we too can participate in his wonderful redemptive plan to show Christ to others so that they can be drawn to him? Because that's our role. We as a church are to make disciples. And how will people know if we're not living our lives in such a way that they can clearly see Christ and be drawn to Him? Will we be open to Him through His Word? Let's pray together. Father, You continue to encourage and convict, sometimes all in the same passage. And You've done that to me this week, and I pray that You will have done that in our deep dive into Mark's Gospel I pray that we will be open to what you share with us so that we can become more and more like you and so that we can share you with others in a way that's winsome and wholesome and truthful and that we won't water down or compromise the truth of the gospel and that people will clearly see, clearly, that you are the one prophesied from the Old Testament who's come into the world and you are the one who's capable of guiding us into the promised land, into heaven for eternity forever. Because you're making a way for us there, for everybody who believes. I pray that we will be open to you and that we'll become more like you so that others can see and receive and partake of that living bread. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.